0: Well, we are continuing with what we began last week, which is a story. Everybody likes a story, for sure. Stories have a way of kind of capturing our, our imaginations and drawing us in and enabling us to follow along and even feel sometimes what the characters feel as they experience the, uh, the events of the story unfold around them. And the, so we're in the second part of a, of a three-part telling of a story this morning. And the story we're telling, I've entitled The Promise, and it is the Christmas story. Normally, when we talk about the Christmas story, people are thinking that it begins in a, in a manger, right? The Christmas story is about the birth of a child in the manger. But I would suggest that the Christmas story itself actually begins in the garden, The story begins in a garden, and it ends in a throne room. And that's the story that I am telling you. It is the message of the Scriptures, really, from beginning to end. It is this great story of redemption beginning in the garden and running all the way to the end of time. So we're looking at it, obviously, uh, not in the detail that one could in compressed into three weeks. We're looking at it only in skeletal form. And we're doing it in a series of eight chapters and an epilogue. And so last week, we managed to get through the first five chapters of this story. And just to remind you, they were chapter one, a kingdom lost, a kingdom lost. And we looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 2, we entitled, Help is on the Way. Help is on the Way, and that was Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Chapter 3 of the story was entitled, Father Abraham. And we looked at the great promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22. So, Father Abraham. We looked also at chapter 4 of this story, The Promise, and we entitled that A Kingdom of Priests. And we looked at a number of places there, but not the least of which was Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. And then finally, we finished up last week with chapter 5, which we called Title to the Land, Title to the Land, and that was Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. So this morning, we will look together at chapters 6 and 7. Chapters 6 and 7. So chapter 6 of this story, this grand story that goes from a garden to a throne room, is entitled, God Chooses a King. Chapter 6, God Chooses a King. Open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 7, where we will focus our attention for this chapter of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God chooses a king. The job of being a king is anything but secure. It is not a particularly secure occupation. Down through history, most kings and their families have come to a bloody end. So it's really not all that great a deal to be selected as the king. And so the promise here in Second Samuel chapter seven is, is really an incredible promise, because it's a promise of an enduring dynasty, an enduring dynasty, which is a very, very significant promise. This promise, known as the Davidic Covenant, is is really a reaffirmation and an enlargement of the original seed promise given back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that is then contained in the promise given to Father Abraham. And I hope you see as we unpack this story chapter by chapter that, that each of the subsequent chapters presuppose the prior chapters. This is a great and grand narrative that builds on itself. The promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 was that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was further enlarged to Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 6, where God says to him, kings shall come forth from you, Abraham. And it is here now in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that it is through the lineage of David, Israel's great king, that the mediator that has been promised back in the garden and the means of reconciliation back to God, that it promised blessing will be fulfilled. It is in the lineage of David. So let's take a look here quickly at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is how the chapter breaks out. In verses 1 through 8 of this chapter, we find David living a luxurious life of the king. He he has conquered his enemies and he is living in a situation of relative security and incredible wealth. And yet his God is still dwelling in a tent made of animal skins. And David desires to build a house for his God, a temple for his God. And so he speaks to the prophet, Nathan, and he says, this is in my heart. This is what I want to do. And Nathan says, go for it. Do do all that is in your heart, David, to serve your God that way. But then God speaks back to Nathan and says, go back to David and tell David the following. Verse 5, chapter 7. Go and say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build a house?'" to dwell, uh, excuse me, build me a house to dwell in? Over to verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. David wants to build a house for God, and God says, David, you're not the guy to build me a house. In fact, just the opposite. I am going to build you. A house, And he is speaking here more than a, than a physical structure to dwell in. He's, he's talking about something significant in terms of a dynasty for David. And so God goes on here through Nathan the prophet. And he says to David, verse 9, that I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, you remember, David was a shepherd boy. And so God is saying to this shepherd boy, I am going to make you so great that you will be known all over the earth. Your name will be preeminent among the kings of the earth. And we see in chapter 8, and verse 13, God's fulfillment of that promise to him. Where it's written, So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. David's military conquests were so uh, dramatic against all kinds of overwhelming odds that God made his name great. Wherever men spoke of great warrior kings, they spoke of David. Furthermore, God says to him in, in verse 10 here, through Nathan the prophet, that he is going to make a place for Israel to live undisturbed. In verse 10, where it says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Now the nation of Israel, as you remember in their history, they they came out of of Egypt and into the promised land, and they conquered the promised land, and all looked like it was going well until Joshua died. And then they were unable to complete the conquest of the land and for a period of 400 years of the judges they were pushed to and fro and had all kinds of foreign oppressors over them. And so the history of the people coming up to this point is that they've really not lived at peace for four generations or excuse me for four centuries. And so this is a very significant promise to David for his people that they are going to live without being disturbed. And again, in chapter 8, and I won't take the time to look through them all, but over and over and over again, the victories, the military victories spoken there in chapter 8 assure Israel of peace in her land that no longer will she be oppressed by foreign powers. And he says also in chapter uh, 7 and verse 11, God says that, that the nation will have rest from its enemies. In the first part of, uh, of um, verse 11, it says, Even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, uh, th- they were afflicted. And he says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So they're going to have a land and they're going to have rest. This is the promise to David. And then finally, God promises David An offspring and a kingdom in perpetuity. The second half of verse 11 and following. He says, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. An incredible promise here. An incredible promise because he promises him that David, your son Solomon, will not be cast off. Even though he disobey. the kingdom will not be stripped from him as it was stripped from Saul for his disobedience. Solomon's kingdom, because of my promise to you, even in his disobedience, he will not lose it. Now, we all know, of course, because of Solomon's disobedience, that when Solomon died and his son assumed the throne, the kingdom divided, and ten of the tribes were taken away, and only two remained. But the kingdom lasted. It it endured through the line of Judah. Now, again, let's just take a moment here and, and look at the magnitude of this promise to david he promises him here a house verse 16 you see that he promises him a house and as i said this is not a physical dwelling this is a dynasty he is promising david a dynasty that is a, a a lineage of physical descendants who will never ever be wiped out typically for kings They only last so long until another rises to the throne, right? And wipes them out and assumes the throne for them. But for David, you can know that your uh, lineage, your dynasty will never, ever be wiped out. Now it came close. It came close in 2 Kings chapter 11 and following we read uh, and are reminded of the story of Athaliah. Remember the wicked um, grandmother to the the, uh, lineage of David who killed all of her grandchildren and sought to destroy the line of David except for one who managed to escape by the name of Joash. And so the lineage, the the house of David, the dynasty of David, in which he had many, many sons, and and behind him Solomon, many, many sons, and it was reduced down to one son, one descendant. But in the providence of God, that descendant Joash was spirited away and hidden and later assumed the throne. And so, although it came to the slenderest of threads, the dynasty of David endured. Beyond that, God promises him here a throne throne. He says, uh, uh, your throne shall be established forever. Now, a throne is a a reference to ruling authority. It is the ruling authority. It is the right to rule. David, your descendants will always have the right to rule. They will be the only true rulers of the nation of Israel. And we see that, interestingly, in uh, Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1. So... Keep your thumb in Second Samuel and go over to Luke 1. And notice there in Luke chapter 1 what the angel says. When the birth of Jesus is foretold. Luke chapter 1 verse 32 and 33. We'll pick it up in 31. You shall be speaking to Mary. He says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The throne still exists. The right to rule still exists, even though it is millennia after this promise to David himself but david your greater son will always uh, your sons will always have this right to rule this throne and eventually your greater son will have this throne forever 2nd samuel 7:16 the prophet also promises him a kingdom he says your kingdom shall endure before me forever now a kingdom is a reference to the subjects That is someone to rule over, right? It's hard to be a king without having a kingdom, without having something to rule over. So here in the the context of 2 Samuel 7, it's it's a reference to the nation of Israel. And so David, you will rule over Israel and your descendants will rule over Israel. But it is expanded in the prophet Isaiah where he promises that the greater son of David will rule the nations, And so the the kingdom of David, the uh, the subject of David initially is the the people of Israel, but it expands to include all of the nations of the world. This is God's incredible promise to David. And what I want you to see is in this amazing promise is the fact that it's an eternal and, and unconditional promise. An eternal and unconditional promise. Notice here, that The use of the word forever. It's, uh, it's used a number of different times here in, uh, in verse 16. Uh, verse 13, it's used as well. Uh, where he says there that uh, the end of verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Uh, your throne shall be established forever. So, so understand this, David, that there is an eternal nature to this. It's going to be how long? Forever. It's going to be forever. David himself, over in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 5, he refers to this promise and he says, God has made an everlasting covenant with me. The psalmist in Psalm 89. So go ahead and turn over to Psalm 89. Which is a psalm of David. This is a, this is a poem written by David himself. And in Psalm 89... He recounts this great promise, and I'm sorry, I was wrong there. It's not a Psalm of David. It's a, it's a Psalm of uh, Ethan, the Ezraite. So, but it's about David, and in uh, Psalm 89, verse three. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Look over to verse 30 and following. Where he says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. God's promise to David lasts forever. Forever. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33 and verse 17 and following says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. That's about as clear as you can get. That the promise to David is that your throne will last forever and your son will sit upon it. Now, we know this is an unconditional promise because if you think with me, David certainly gave plenty of opportunity for God to cancel it if it was conditional. If it required David's obedience, there would have been plenty of opportunity for, for God to have canceled it, right? We don't have to go far beyond 2 Samuel 7 till we find the sordid tale with Bathsheba. And so if the covenant was conditional upon David's uh, faithful obedience with God, then it could have and should have been removed. We could go on to the life of Solomon himself and know that if it were dependent upon Solomon's faithfulness, for it to continue and endure, then it would have and should have been removed. Think about Saul before David. Saul's sin is that he didn't wait to offer the sacrifice. He acted faithlessly, and God removed him and his posterity from the throne of Israel. So God's promise to David is eternal, and it is unconditional. That doesn't mean that each and every one of his sons will sit on that throne, will will exercise that authority over the nation of Israel. That is dependent upon their obedience. The promise itself is never taken away, but access to the promise is dependent upon obedience. And so, as you follow the history of the kings of Judah, what you see is periods of faithfulness, followed by periods of unfaithfulness, and eventually they are removed from the land in the Babylonian captivity. And then later brought back and removed from the land again in the Roman dispersion. And yet, the promise of the throne remains. The promise of the dynasty remains. The promise of the subjects over which the greater king will rule remains. Even as you read the narrative of the, of the history of the kings of Israel, what you, what you hear the refrain over and over again is they obeyed, but not like their father who? David. Not like their father David. So the world desperately needed a king to sit on the throne of David who would fulfill all that God intends. The king that would deliver them. And that, my friends, takes us to chapter 7. Chapter 7. The mystery of Messiah. The mystery of Messiah. In Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. In other words, at the exact Right moment in human history God sent forth his son the greatest gift the world could ever know and we find an account of that gift in Matthew chapter 1 and so I turn you there to Matthew chapter 1 for the mystery of Messiah the mystery of Messiah that great king long before promised Now, Matthew chapter 1 is an interesting chapter for many, many reasons, but not the least of which is it starts out with a genealogy. And genealogies, for most of us Westerners, are difficult. We tend to consider them flyover territory, right? Hard name begot, hard name begat, hard name begat, hard name. And then let's get on to something edifying, right? Isn't that the general Bible reading approach? Now, be honest, it's Christmas, Yeah, exactly. But the genealogies are very, very important. And they are very, very important because they they are what ties things together from what has gone on before. They're what draw the promise forward and and bring it to its fulfillment. And that's exactly what happens here in Matthew chapter 1 in the first 16 verses of this chapter. Here, Matthew is going to trace, in abbreviated form, he is going to trace the history of the Jewish nation. And in the process of doing that, he is going to forge a chain that is going to link Jesus Christ to two people, Abraham and David. He will link him to Abraham and David. And that's exactly how he structures this genealogy. Verses 1 through 6 here of Chapter 1 gives the origin of the Davidic throne and its fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. In in Genesis chapter 17, in verse 6, where he says, kings shall come forth from you, right? So verse 1, chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and that's how it begins. And it ends there in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. So in the first six verses, what we have is the, is the linkage that brings forward the chain that ties David to Abraham. David to Abraham. Verses 7 through 11 gives the rise and fall of the Davidic throne. The rise and fall of the Davidic throne. That is how it comes up to its great height of glory and how it falls away in disobedience. And then in verses 12 through 16, we have what's known as the eclipse of the Davidic throne, right? You see, at the end of verse 11, or verse 11, it says, uh, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the fall of the throne. Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and on it goes. But there, there is never a, a. Davidic descendant to sit upon the throne of Israel. It sits vacant. The throne is vacant. So it's dark. The history of the nation is now incredibly dark. The throne is empty. The promise looks like perhaps it's been voided somehow. And then against the, the, the backdrop of this Most discouraging time, there is a blazing light of glory that that shines forth from heaven and reveals on the pages of human history to all who will see the gift of the great Davidic king. He comes forth. The prophet Isaiah spoke of that time in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, where he said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That is so understated. That is so understated. And when you think about this, that all is dark. All appears lost for 700 years. And then the light shines. And you would think there would be trumpets everywhere. And Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. His mother had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal. That's that's something that's kind of foreign, a cultural custom foreign to us Westerners. It's simply this, that with the consent of of the two relatively young people, although Joseph was likely considerably older than Mary, Mary perhaps as young as 15, with their consent, their parents made an agreement for them to marry. And so they entered into what was called a betrothal period. They exchanged vows, and they entered into a betrothal period. During this betrothal period, they were considered married, although they did not live together, and they certainly did not uh, uh, live as husband and wife together. They did not consummate. But during that one-year period of time, the, the husband would go to prepare the place to receive his bride to himself. It would be his opportunity to get his house ready to receive the bride. All through that time, they are considered legally husband and wife. Notice verse 19, where there Matthew says, and Joseph, her husband. So he's called her husband, even though from the point of view of you or I, it's more like an engagement. And we normally don't refer to the the engaged man as a husband. Not yet, right? He's got to get to the altar. But here, it is considered that way. The only way a betrothal can be broken is by divorce. That's the only way it can be broken is either divorce or the death of one or the other of the parties. Now according to Mosaic law during the betrothal period any sexual infidelity is considered adultery and is punishable under the law under the Mosaic law Deuteronomy 22 it's punishable by stoning by death. Now most writers believe that by the New Testament times this punishment was not Uh, regularly carried out, probably uh, infrequently carried out. But in a small village, it's certainly possible. Notice verse 18 again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, this young girl, before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She becomes pregnant. She becomes pregnant. She's still a virgin. And yet she conceives in her womb a child. How? How does this happen? Well, we're indebted to Luke, chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. When Mary says to the angel herself, how can this be? How can this be since I am a virgin? How can I I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. And the angel answers her and said, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. This is a mystery, beloved. It's not hard to understand. How did Mary conceive? The Holy Spirit of God came upon her, and she conceived. That's a mystery. But it is no more difficult a mystery to understand than how did God from the dust of the earth create Adam and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and and Adam became a living soul. You explain that one, and then the uh, virgin conception of Mary should, you know, not really trouble you too much. It is the power of God who gives life and created life in her womb. Now, how's Joseph going to respond to this? Guys, how would you respond to this? How would you respond to this? When Mary says to you, Joseph, I've got something I need to tell you. Okay, try me. Well, you see, I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a baby. Because uh, the angel appeared to me and told me that that I'm going to conceive in my womb. And I'm going to have a baby. And, And I've never known a man, Joseph. I've never known a man. You can imagine that Joseph is a bit baffled in such things. And so Joseph is is torn here, verse 19. He he is torn between duty and love. And so he develops a plan. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph is a righteous man, the text tells us. He, He doesn't really know what's going on here. When she says she's going to have a baby, he he draws the only conclusion that one could naturally draw, right? You have been unfaithful to me, Mary. You have committed adultery. Now, he's a righteous man. And what that means biblically is, is that a righteous man honors the law of God. When you read in the Old Testament, and this is an Old Testament narrative, when you read in the Old Testament that such and such a person was a righteous man, what that means is that they honored and valued and obeyed the law of God. They were a righteous man. And so Joseph, he, he cannot go through with a marriage here. Because to go through with a marriage here would be to turn his back on God and to cover her sin, and that he cannot and he will not do. He is a righteous man. But Joseph's heart is full of love for this woman. And so not wanting to disgrace her, not wanting to expose her to the public shame of the elders of the village and the potential and possibility of even the death sentence. But he's in a quandary, right? He can't marry her. And cover up her sin and, and claim the child to be his own. He's not going to deliver her over to the authorities. So he decides to try to chart a middle course and to divorce her quietly, right? the end of verse 19, he planned to send her away secretly. He planned to send her away secretly. In verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The angel says, go ahead and marry her. Go ahead and go through with it. And he does that, right? He took Mary as his wife, verse 24. He goes through and marries with her, marries her. Now, Joseph is a man of incredible faith here. There is no historical precedent of this. You can't look and say, well, you know, so-and-so, that happened to them, and, and so forth, right? This is it. This is it. He, is, he has reached this crisis point of his faith. Will he believe? Will he believe? And he does. And how do I know that he believes? Simply this, he keeps her a virgin, it says, verse 25, until she gives birth to the son. He keeps her a virgin. Why? Because the prophet says in verse 23 that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. She must remain a virgin to fulfill the prophecy all the way to the end. And so he keeps her a virgin, even though he marries her. This is an incredible mystery. This is an amazing mystery. Let's let's explore that mystery a bit, huh? How about if we tease it out with a few questions this Christmas time of year, huh? Let's explore the mystery with a few questions. I've got three of them for you. The first question is this. How can a son of Solomon sit on the throne of David? How can a son of Solomon sit on the throne of David? Now, here's, here's why this question is important. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, right, we have that original promise to Solomon. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's a promise to Solomon that his descendant will be forever upon the throne of David. So far, so good. That looks pretty straightforward. The problem comes, and I'll have to turn you to Jeremiah chapter 22 to see where the problem comes. So if you'll turn over to Jeremiah chapter 22 and verses 24 to the end of the chapter, we encounter what is known as the curse of Jeconiah or sometimes known as the curse of Coniah. Several centuries after this promise to Solomon, when the house of David has been incredibly unfaithful to God, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, pronounces a curse on the house of David. And here it is. Verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah... Okay, or also known as Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin. So all three names refer to the same individual. The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans." And I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country and where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. And then, speaking to the people of Judah, he says, Is this man Coniah a despised or shattered jar? Answer, no. Or is he an undesirable vessel? No. Well, why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? That is Babylon. Why are they being cast out? Hear the declaration of the Lord. O land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Because of the unbelief and wickedness of the house of David. There is a prophecy given to Jeremiah to the the descendant of David. Coniah or Jehoiachin or Jeconiah he is known by in various places. same, Same guy, different names. Your son will never sit on the throne of David. The promise will not pass through you. Uh oh. Problem. Problem. Here's the problem. Take a look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. We've got a promise to Solomon, to David through Solomon, that your son will always sit on the throne. One of your sons will sit on the throne. We have a prophecy to to one of those descendants that says, none of your sons will ever sit on the throne. We've got two conflicting commitments from God. It appears like God has put himself in a box. And we get here to Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And look at this. And Josiah became the father of of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And on it goes until verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So clearly, Jeconiah is in the legal lineage of the Messiah. But he's not supposed to have a son who can sit on the throne. You see, if, if a son of David through Solomon doesn't occupy the throne, then, then David's promise to, uh, God's promise to David is null and void. But if a son of Jeconiah sits on the throne, then God's promise through Jeremiah to Jeconiah is null and void. You have conflicting promises. So how, does, how is this resolved? Answer, the virgin birth. The virgin birth. Because Jesus' physical descent comes through Mary. Comes through Mary. And if you go to Luke chapter 3 and verse 31, where we have another genealogy, you see the most interesting thing. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23 is the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. And what you see in verse 31 is it says, the son of Malia, the son of Menna, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Nathan, the son of David. So Jesus' legal right to the throne comes through the legal descent that passes through Jeconiah to Joseph, his adopted father. But his physical descent passes through Mary, who is the descendant of David's son Nathan. His son Nathan. And so one of David's sons does sit on the throne through the lineage of Nathan. The legal right to rule continues to pass through Solomon and through Jeconiah, even though Jeconiah's line has been cut off. And, beloved, that all resolves itself in the mystery of Messiah, the virgin birth of Christ. Another question. How can a woman have a seed? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's Eve's descendant, not Adam's, that is prophesied to to bruise the head of the serpent. Yet it's Adam who is the fountainhead of humanity. So how can a descendant of Eve, how can a descendant of Eve uh, not inherit the fallen nature of her husband, Adam, and, and thus need a redeemer herself? Answer? A virgin birth. The virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and and she will call his name Emmanuel. It is through the virgin birth that the seed of the woman comes to deliver mankind. Another question in this mystery of Messiah is, how can God be with us? You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How can God be with us without destroying us? How can that be? Exodus 19, verse 12, where there it said, Do not touch the mountain or you will die. Exodus 33, verse 20, No man may see me, God says, and live. John 1, No man has seen God at any time. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. God dwells in unapproachable light. How can God be with us and not destroy us? Answer? The Incarnation. It is the Incarnation, because, because there in the person of Christ are the two natures, unfallen humanity and undiminished deity, the fullness of God. In human form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, we're told. Colossians 2.29. In the person of Christ. We could not and cannot go into the presence of God. But God stepped into space and time that he might appear to us without destroying us. The mystery of Messiah. Verse 21 of Matthew 1, she will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's think about this verse a little bit, can we? As we get ready for Christmas? Can we just think about this verse a little bit? Let's think about that little expression there. The end of the verse, their sins, their sins. Well, here's, I'll put too fine a point on it. (laughs) People are sinners. (laughs) People are sinners, right? I mean, we we readily admit such things. We say, we're quick to say, nobody is perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. We all kind of acknowledge that readily, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all do and fail to do. We all say and fail to say. We all think and, and think wrongly in many different ways. We, we know we sin. We know we sin. And our problem is, is that God doesn't grade on a, on a scale, on a curve, right? God's standard is, is pass-fail. And, 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 the, and the standard is perfection. Perfection. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, right? you had to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so humanity has, a, has this massive problem. We don't measure up. We fall short. We're sinners. I mean, what does God require of you this morning? But that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's his standard. And we've all fallen short. The Bible calls this sin, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty for sin is death. Romans six twenty-three: for the wages of sin is death. So humanity has this massive problem. But look at verse 21 again. You shall call his name Jesus. Literally, he will save. You shall call his name, he will save. Because we need a Savior. We need a Savior. I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? If you, if you can't obey God's requirements, then you must have Help. You must have someone who can help you. You need a Savior. You will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people. You see that? He will save his people. In other words, not everybody will be saved. Not everybody will be saved. This time of year, particularly, there's a sort of a pernicious notion that circulates that in the end, everything's going to be okay. Right? God is, is sort of like a great big Santa Claus in the sky. He'll, he'll, in the end, he'll, he'll overlook everything. He'll welcome everybody. Everybody. But Jesus is very clear. Not everyone will be saved. He says himself in the night in which he was betrayed, he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Only he can save. And it is only his people that he will save. Matthew 7 and verse 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. It's a sobering reality, beloved, this time of year. There are many, 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 many people walking around with Merry Christmas on their lips. Who are eternally lost. Eternally lost. Look again at verse 21. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people. He will save his people. In other words, salvation comes through a person. It comes through a person. Salvation doesn't come as a a result of our own strength, our own good works, our own efforts, our own reputation, our own generosity, our own religious devotion. None of these things. He will save. That is, the Savior will save. None of our effort, none of your effort, can possibly save your soul? None of it. You must have a Savior. And that Savior must be Jesus. It must be. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the It is Jesus who died on that Roman cross to bear in his body the suffering due for the guilt of your sin. It is Jesus who was buried in that tomb. It is Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day because death could not hold him. Because he had drunk the wrath of God to its final drop. And paid for sinfully. It is he who saves those who embrace him by faith. Verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. He will deliver his people from their sins. He will deliver us, beloved, from the penalty of sin. The eternal condemnation that is justly due each and every one of us. He will deliver us. He will deliver us from the power of sin. For when Christ died and we are united with him by faith, we died too to the power of sin, Paul tells us. Sin no longer rules us. It no longer drives us. We are no longer its slave. And he will save us from the very presence of sin someday. When he takes us to be with himself. You will bear a son. And you'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. I trust that you know the saving power of God this morning. As you sit here in these comfortable pews in this nice, well-lit room with the beautiful ambiance all around us. Do you know Jesus? Have you fled to the cross of Christ this Christmas? Are you sure at the depth of your soul that Jesus has saved you from your sins. You can. And you should. I invite you, if you want to talk further on these things, to to come see me down front here. After, there'll be people milling around. Don't worry about, you know, oh, wow, I'm going to stand out. Everybody's going to sit here and look at me. No, they're not going to look at you. They're too busy looking at themselves. Come, let's talk more. Beloved, don't go through this another Christmas without knowing for sure that Jesus has saved you from your sins. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for the gift of Christ that you sent your Son into this world to save us from our sin, to do what we can never, ever do, We can never be good enough. We can never repay to cover our transgression. We can never make it right with you. There's no bargain we can strike. You sent your son. That first Christmas morning, that that great gift. And so, Father, even as we have spent this time working through this story and exploring some of the, the mystery of it all, let us not in all of that lose sight of the simple reality that you shall call His name Jesus for He shall save His people from their sins. O oh, Father, may that truth be the anchor of our soul. I ask in Jesus' name.